Welcome to Politicus, the only podcast that discusses politics and public service from the Portuguese American perspective. Here we discuss everything from federal policy, local issues, and U.S. Portugal relations with the goal of driving more discussion and awareness of the issues affecting our nation, our community, and what we as Portuguese Americans can do about it. And now, Politicus. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Politicus. My name is Angela Samos, and I am here with my most esteemed co-host, as always, Denise Borges. How are you, Denise? I am exceptionally well, and uh, how are you, Madam and Almighty Chairperson? <laughs> I'm doing well. Um, today, we have someone from the state of Virginia that we have never had before, so I'm very excited, the Honorable Nancy Rodriguez, uh, or Rodriguez who has served in the, in the state of Virginia under three governors. And she gave me a, a tidbit of info that I thought was quite fascinating. The last Portuguese in Virginia to raise to the level of a cabinet was Peter Francisco. And for those of you who know Peter Francisco, the Hercules of the revolution, I mean, that was quite a while ago. So we've had quite a gap in Portuguese representation in Virginia government, at least at that, that level. Um, so we are super thrilled to have you here. Nancy, thank you for joining us. It is my pleasure and honor to be here. So Nancy, why don't we start by telling us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Virginia. I know you were born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. Um, so you know what, what brought you to Virginia and how did you get involved in public service? Well, again, thank you for this opportunity to be with you today. And I would imagine coming from Newark, New Jersey, you may have some individuals listening that I can tell my former community that I've always carried them in my heart, even in the state of Virginia. It was a hard decision to leave uh, Newark, New Jersey, because as you know, it is a very tight-knit Portuguese community and come to Virginia which I did for graduate school at the College of William and Mary. And then I was lucky enough to actually get involved in politics. I must admit, I got involved in politics very honestly. One of my, what I call primus from North New Jersey is Armando Funtora, who's the sheriff of Essex County. And he and my parents, Danielle and Elvira Rodriguez, were very, very politically involved. So I must admit, I learned about politics at our kitchen table in Newark. When I came to Virginia, I just really fell in love with the Commonwealth. It is a beautiful state to live in. The only thing I must admit, it was very difficult those early years to find Bacayao. But outside of that, <laughs> very true. Yeah. <laughs> very, very true. Very true. And I remember down in Norfolk, we had Harbor Fest and the Sox was in town, the ship, the teaching ship. And they told me I was the only person who spoke Portuguese to them the entire weekend. So that kind of shows what it is. But since then, Obviously, we now have a wonderful Portuguese winery. We have a growing community in Manassas. We also have a very strong Brazilian 
population here in the Commonwealth. But I fell in love with the ability to be able to help so many people by entering the world of public service. I think as the daughter of immigrants, I learned very early that to he who is given much, much is expected. And being one of the first back in the early 70s to graduate college, my sister was the first in our family to do so, that I really felt a need to give back to society. And government service worked very well for me. You said uh, your sister before you uh, graduated from college, you were talking about the 1970s. I mean, that was pioneer in itself because not a lot of Portuguese Americans in general, men or women, but especially women, were unfortunately graduating from college in those days. Your folks must have had a different take on education than unfortunately a lot of other Portuguese Americans did. Well, I was very lucky to be the daughter of two people who were actually what they call the old guard in Newark. There were the gang of five. Oh, Mr. Um, Gervais, who, who started the Wusso Americano, my parents, Elvira and Daniel Rodriguez, and then there were a couple more who really started the Portuguese community. And they understood, all of them, the importance of educating our youth. As a matter of fact, this is dating myself, but my parents were instrumental in starting the Portuguese American Scholarship Foundation that went on for about a quarter of a century yeah, before it well. finally closed. Yes, because my mother was very upset. I, my sister's older than I am. And she was very upset when my sister came home and told her all of her Portuguese friends were not going to college because their parents saw no need to educate women. And so my mother sat down and wrote a, a letter to the Luso Maricano and started a scholarship that many people in the community saw the need for and rose to. But you're right, Denise, it was going against the grain. Especially when I look back, my father uh, left Portugal and barely had a fourth grade education. My mother, on the other hand, had a high school education. And both of them were such great believers in trying to better ourselves by assimilating into the American culture through education. Part of the one, one of the things I love about doing these podcasts is that we start to find out, we, we always learn something, but then we, we find out the, the connections between the, the community. I mean, who knew that we would be speaking with somebody whose parents really helped to, to found so many of the um, pillars in, in the Newark, New Jersey community. So that's fantastic. It was really, that's very cool to, to learn that about your family. As a matter of fact, if you can recall, when the JPAC, New Jersey Center for the Performing Arts, opened, they actually opened with a documentary. And that documentary were the 
ties from Newark to Portugal. And I had the pleasure of being in that documentary because it really was an amazing time in Newark, New Jersey. I'm laughing because the early memories I have are someone knocking on the door of our house on McQuarter Street, and they would have a little piece of paper in their hands, and they would unfold it, and they would say, you know, does Daniel Rodriguez or Albino Rodriguez live here? And I was taught to say, Precisa agua y usar cuarto de baño. So those were two things that I learned. But as a result, we sometimes had as much as 15 people sweeping at our house and 16 people eating at our house. And I was convinced that anybody who left Portugal was given our address to come by. Mm-hmm. But it was an amazing thing. It was the spirit of the community. I remember when Our Lady of Fatima Church in Newark, where I did my first communion and my confirmation. I remember when all of the church was being built and there was such a sense of community, almost to the point of too much community, because if I was outside talking to a boy on the front oh, yeah. house, my mother You're got a phone new. call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds, I mean, this strong sense of community sounds like that was a a big part of what drove you to public service. How did that, those values translate into your work that you did in your role? Well, I will tell you that public service is very demanding and not for the faint of heart. The work ethic that one has or is taught at an early age really was such a strength in public service. Also, I I attribute to my Portuguese heritage, my tenaciousness. And that is- Yes, very much. (laughs) you You can tell me anything, but don't tell me now. If there is someone in need or if there is, um, and, and my background, especially in Virginia, is the conducting elections. I served as secretary of the state board of elections and oversaw uh, the 2008 election, which was the first Obama race. And then as secretary of administration, the Department of Elections was under me. So I feel very, very strong because, again, relating to the Portuguese background, I met a lot of people who left Portugal because of Salazar and the fact that they could not vote, that there, or if they did vote, it was just a sham. So I learned the importance of everyone being able to vote early on. And also that goes hand in hand with education because you have to educate yourself as to who is the right person to vote for. So, and and I would like to touch upon the election uh, 
as you over, have overseen elections uh, and, and it's been a big part of your public service, talking about elections, election fraud and everything else is very pertinent nowadays. But before we get to that, a little bit of how you transitioned. So you came to Virginia for your master's and ended up staying. And so how, what, what transition, what happened there for you to transition into public service after your degree? My degrees have been in government. So when I was here in Virginia, I first started working for the National Center for State Courts. So I worked for the judiciary for about six years. Then I was, uh, went to work for a member of the House of Delegates in the legislative arena and worked for him for a number of years and became a lobbyist. After that, uh, Tim Kaine came up to, well, in the Kaine administration, they had been looking for a secretary of the State Board of Elections and were having difficulty finding someone because it was a very, very difficult job requiring a lot of work. And so I was asked to apply and I actually tried to talk the governor out of not picking me, and uh, but he did, and uh, the rest is is history, and just that strong work ethic. I must. There was at one time where I worked seventy days without taking a day off, and you know you do what you have to do. And when you were. And, and fortunately for, for us and for Virginians and, and for the Portuguese American community that you didn't talk uh, then Governor Tim Kaine out of, out of that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so uh, we're thankful that, uh, that, that he stuck to his guns. Um, and so your work as uh, Secretary of State for the Secretary of the Board of the Elections for Virginia and then, of course, in the administration, other capacities as well, a lot during elections. What have you what has been some of the obstacles up? Uh, and, and just to put it in perspective, as you know, in today's world and because of the very recent 2020 election, there's all these questions of election fraud that are raised. And of course, you can speak uh, mostly for Virginia with your uh, amalgam of experience. But have you seen that fraud is uh, something that is to be worried about or are there other issues in the electoral process uh, in Virginia and your thoughts as you see from some of your colleagues throughout the states? Again, speaking only to Virginia, we, during my tenure, made voter fraud almost impossible. We have a very sophisticated computer system which, I mean, just the security on that alone is worthy um, to tell you it'd be very difficult. I'll give you an example. We hear very often that dead people vote, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, in Virginia, we get a update from not only Social Security, but the health department and whatever, and we are constantly updating to make sure that dead people are purged from the rolls. During this past election, I heard repeatedly that, oh, ballots were printed in China or Russia and came over to the United States. I'm sure you heard that quite a bit. 
-hmm. In Virginia, we vote on paper. That paper has a barcode along Mm. the sides of of the ballot. That barcode corresponds to individual precincts. Because in a precinct, you may be voting for president of the United States, but you may also be voting for a congressperson, or you may have some local elections. Mm -hmm. And in those local elections, you may have two different candidates you can vote on in one of those precincts. Sure. So everything has to be coded. So if if somebody were to drop off, you know, ballots, there's no way the the machine would accept those ballots into it because the barcode would not match up. And every single ballot is counted and every single ballot, it's like a dollar bill, has a watermark to it. So those are some of the areas. Have I seen fraud? The fraud that I have uh, saw was very minimal, and it was generally done on a very, very local election, like somebody running for a um, town council or you know a local election. Those, and we quickly figured it out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the one case that we were able, and by the way, in Virginia, we prosecute, mm. Make no mistake about that. We definitely prosecute, but one other ex- quick example, how there might be a perception that doesn't turn out to be real was we got, um, once, you know, you go to the polling place, you tell them their name, your name, and they give you a ballot accordingly. Well, they check your name off in the poll book so you can't vote again. We noticed that one of the names in the poll book was someone who was a registered felon who was not allowed to vote in Virginia. It turns out when we investigated it, the son was in jail on the day of election day. The father, who had the same name, one was a junior, one was a senior, the father did indeed go vote that day. So whoever marked their name in the book just marked the wrong person. Hmm. You know, it's a human process. Sure, so, sure. you know, fraud is easy to throw out the myth, mm-hmm. but um, as someone who has, you know, helped to prosecute, and usually if you see fraud, it's people trying to register people to vote by going to a telephone book and start putting names down. Mm-hmm. Well, in Virginia, we need your social security number. And then if that person is already in our system, we reach out to make sure that there isn't a mistake here, meaning you didn't move or something like that. So there are many, many safeguards. And I know I speak for my 
my former counterparts throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Every state has has built in security measures. So as someone, you know, running uh, uh, elections and, and, and of course you, you know, we, we all have in our democracy the premise that, you know, we want everybody who is eligible to vote. I mean, uh, we want uh, a democracy that is a participative democracy. We can't really have a democracy if we only have 25 or 30 percent of the population who is able to indeed vote. So we want people to vote. What what are some of the challenges that you saw through all, throughout all these years of getting folks, uh, you know, throwing out that myth of the fraud? And if it does exist, as you explained very, very well, it is at a, a very, very minute percentage. What are some of the challenges to get more and more people to actually participate and, and not have any obstacles to participate in, in voting in America? Because, uh, and, you know, taking, of course, Virginia as, a, as an example, because obviously I think that that is one of the key roles of someone in charge of elections is, of course, making sure that they are safe and they are, and they are legitimate, but also to get as many people to participate as possible. Um, very good question. I think for a while that our legislators didn't comprehend that today's work environment is is different. Most Americans do not work nine to five. Correct. So you have several people who cannot vote. A, A perfect example is myself who on election day for the last 20 years, I've always voted absentee because I'm working more than 11 hours a day, you know, 12 hours a day. Actually, last last election day, I worked 23 hours in a day monitoring the election. So by opening up this pandemic, in a way had had a good part to it in that it opened up and made people realize that we needed to make absentee voting more accessible, especially to people who, who are caregivers as well as people with two jobs. And the other thing is weather. I mean, If you know an ice storm is coming on election day, then you're going to make every attempt to try to work, you know, go to work, uh, vote early as a result of it. So those are the types of things. I'm sad to say in Virginia, we have had in the past some issues of intimidation in terms of individuals showing up outside who were very negative and filming people who who look like us, you know, dark eyes, dark hair, or I have gray hair now, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I do too, but yeah, I know I know exactly where you're going. So so that that was a concern. Always has been, always will be. But that to me is more of a threat. The one last thing, and I say this to the community, is the language barrier. Mm -hmm. It is important. I mean, it's 
hard for me as someone who's a, an election professional in the past to keep up with all of the changes. And I know at least having worked with the Latino community, our um, Latinx now community in Virginia, it was also difficult because of a literacy issue. Uh, remember when we started our conversation, I was pretty heavy on education. Mm -hmm. I mean, that plays right into voting. You know, you have to be able to be knowledgeable about what the issues are and who's running as well. And we're getting better, at least in Virginia, about having instructions in different languages. So first, I want to thank you for walking us through the process that, that has been established for elections, at least in the state of Virginia, because there's a lot of assumptions I think that people make on how it works. Um, and a lot of those assumptions as assumptions go are incorrect. So I uh, thank you for walking us through that. It's very, very thorough. And I know that if I were to ever vote in Virginia, I would feel very confident, you know, that my vote is going to count and that there's very little fraud, if any. And it, you know, it certainly sounds like you all have established a process that works incredibly well that could serve as some best practices. You know, I think the fact that each state almost has their own process, you know, where here where I live, they actually give you uh, in California and at least in the county of Alameda, you have a choice. You can do it on paper or you can use the, the computer, right? And so there's like different ways to do it. You know, everyone like that has a, a, you know, a different like checklist. It's just kind of, it's kind of weird. Anyway, I'm just curious as to your thoughts on should there be, or would it work if there were at least some standard ways of executing an election, at least on the state, like a statewide election, state by state, not, and not to say that the federal government should mandate anything, but do you think that would be beneficial in some way, or do you think it not really matters? It's really... Well, I, I will tell you one thing. It makes trying to do a fraudulent election much more difficult when you have, in Virginia, for instance, you have 133 localities and all elections are local. Now, you, it's the same thing on a national level. You've got 50 states, the District of Columbia, the U.S. territories. I mean, I don't know how somebody could hack the United States voting system when you, I mean, you would need, imagine that task. However, what you can do, and the federal government has been able to do that through UACABA. I mean, all service personnel is treated, the U.S. servicemen are, and women are treated the same throughout, you know, borders. I think there can be some umbrella policies now, Virginia and New Jersey, uh, I picked the two states in the United States, by the way, who have an election every year. Every other state, for the most part, has an election every other, other year. year. Mm -hmm. Right. For, for federal, their local and federal are at the same time, not in Virginia. This year, we will do local elections elections and we will elect our, our governor 
and next year it'll be federal. So we generally don't combine those. There are some localities who do that. For the most part, I, I would think that the United States government could have some general rules. We did it under the, you know, the Civil Rights Act. We made progress along that way. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has struck down most of those key components, but hopefully cooler heads will prevail. And as you pointed out, you know, just some commonality among the states would be great and commonalities that we can all all share and have a fair access to the ballot box. In Virginia, for 45 days before an election, you can show up and cast your vote. However, if you live in another state, like Georgia, you don't get 45 days to do that. You just get a couple of weeks. So if we could standardize something like that, where there's at least a minimum, that would be terrific. Those are great. some great points. Um, and I do want to just give a plug for our community. Um, according to the Paucus Index National Survey, while not completely representative of the community, we did have over 1,200 respondents. We have a very high voting rate. It's almost, uh, I think, like 20 points higher than the national average or something like that. I can't remember the exact point, but people, um, we have a we have a fairly active, civically active community. So we were very proud to see that data point in our survey. May I turn the tables now? I'm just curious about something. Do the two of you think that maybe because of Portugal's history under a dictatorship, that that makes us as a, a, a people really um, be more civic minded because we didn't have the right to vote for so long? Well, um, that's the first time we've had an interviewee turn to be the interviewee. That is good. <laughs> that tells me, you know, of course, the uh, that, you know, the training that you got from home, not just at the... Uh, not just uh, uh, with your multiple degrees, but also from uh, uh, parents who seem to be awesome examples for all of us. Two things, uh, Nancy, uh, uh, just real quick, because our time is also, and we want you to be the featured guest, not us, but two things. I think, first of all, as as uh, as uh, Angela mentioned, it was, you know, we had over 1,200 participants, but it was a bit more of an educated and already Portuguese-Americans, many of them, you know, already of first, second, and even third generation. So I think in the immigrant community, it depends in certain areas more than others, uh, in certain rural parts and certain even urban parts as well of the United States, the urban, the community, uh, some that felt uh, the importance of it actually did go and, and felt that, you know, this was uh, a privilege. My father, my, my parents, one of them uh, were some. Well, as soon as they became U.S. citizens, they thought it was just uh, they they felt it was a duty. There was just no 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 you know ifs ands or buts about it. It was a duty to go vote because you became a citizen of this country and you had to go do it. And and my father recalled that in Portugal he only voted for one. There was only one person on the ballot, so you know uh, you couldn't you you had that. Uh, so I think th there's some of that, but I believe in our Palcas uh, national survey. It's a little bit more of a younger generation. I think the older generation was not as as uh, 
participative as some of the younger generation is. And I mean, the younger generation, I'm talking about folks, you know, between their, you know, thirties and, 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 and 60. Yeah. yeah even yeah. going even to mid fifties. Um, I think folks over 60 and especially over 65 and the older Portuguese Americans, it's still lacking a little bit. It's not, you know, it's not as, as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, it's a, it, there's a, there's that is a factor but probably because of the survey was a little bit more toward a higher education level mm-hmm. that it, it offered us, you know, that as a generality for, for the community. But we see that in some local parishes where there's been work done, uh, data collected that Portuguese Americans in general, when they're, uh, you know, when they're enticed and they're, and they're, and, and there's that, that key component that you mentioned education, they will vote in higher percentages. Yeah, I can say, so I'm third generation American born, so I I can't speak for the immigrant experience, but my father always talked about his grandfather, who was the immigrant, and how my father actually helped him study for the citizenship test, and that it was like one of the most proud days of, of his grandfather's life, and that I think that was like one of the only times he saw his grandfather cry, and so I guess, you know, my dad seeing how important it was to my to his grandfather to become a citizen and then to vote and, and participate civically. My dad was very strong. I mean, he wore that sticker, I voted, with so much pride whenever he did it. And so I that certainly translated over to me. But you know, that comes from, you know, that that third gener three generations back of, you know, coming to this country and, and having uh, more opportunities and um, you know, providing for your family. So that pride in, uh, in countries, um, you know, translated uh, through my father. So I don't know if that helps to answer your question, but that's kind of where it, where it comes but from. I, but I think that, Nancy, that we some somewhere at some university, we need to put someone working on that. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, I, I definitely think, though, if someone's listening to this podcast, Uh, One of the things they've learned from all of us on this podcast is the true importance and our history speaks to our history as a Portuguese people speaks to the importance of that even more. So I I really appreciate both of your insights. Mm -hmm. I learned something today. Well, thank you. Now we we do need to wrap it up. And so we'll just ask you one last question, which is something that we try to ask all of our guests, which is, you know, for anyone listening out there, whether they be a young Portuguese American who's still in school or just starting their career, or maybe perhaps even someone that's, you know, well into their career, but, you know, thinking of making a change and they've always wanted to, you know, become civically active, what would be your advice to them to, to start you know, getting involved or or pursuing a career in public service? There's a difference between public service and politics. And I started my public service through politics because I learned that, let me put it this way, the power to persuade is the power to command. And quoting a political philosopher. And I think starting out, I mean, God knows we need to get good people into elective roles. So if anybody listening to this podcast 
has never been asked to consider running for public office, let me be the first one saying, think about public service, even at our uh, public office. Uh, even someone so young could run for a board of education position. What greater person than someone that's just been through the system? If you don't feel that you can put yourself out there, because again, being an elected official is not for the faint of heart, neither is being an appointed official. Find someone who's running for office that sounds like somebody you can support and then talk to them, get to know them and work with them. Many of the people that I first started off with in politics when I was a legislative assistant in assembly back in the early 1990s, I can tell you that some of those people I got to know, two of them became governors and one is a justice on the Virginia Supreme Court. Wow, that's amazing. So, that is how, and, and you have the added benefit of knowing that good people are serving you. And if they're not serving you, they will take your calls and they will listen to you. Because sometimes even the best politician, even the best statesman need a course correction. And come on, we're not only a descendants of Peter Francisco, but, you know, we've got Vasco da Gama. We've got, you know, Navigators, Prince mm -hmm. Henry the Navigator. I mean, we have got it. We can steer people on the right course. And our country needs you now more than ever. So that's how I would like to end it. It's a perfect way to end it. That's and, perfect. Uh, what, it's, yeah. Yeah. What a fascinating uh, <laughs> <amazing>. conversation. <laughs> we, need to, we need to have a follow-up on this, Angela and... Uh, hopefully, uh, if Nancy has time uh, in the near future. But uh, uh, on my behalf, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was, it was fascinating. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah, no, that was, uh, it was fantastic. Thank you for your time. And we will, uh, I think, have you back and maybe delve a little bit more into the election stuff uh, as we start to have more, I guess, not say controversial conversations, but, you know, addressing things that are a little bit more heavy and, and meaningful to to the community. And thanks everybody out there who listened and joined us for another episode of Politicus. If you haven't hit subscribe yet, please do so and leave us a review on iTunes. That means that more Portuguese uh, people will be able to find us and listen to the conversation and join and take Nancy's advice and consider running for public office and uh, share this conversation with friends and family. The more people that we have listening and participating in the conversation, the better our community will be. So with that, we'll say muito obrigada, as Nancy says, and um, thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you all. Take care. Thank you for listening to Politicus, the official podcast of PALCUS, the Portuguese American Leadership Council of the United States. PALCUS is the premier national organization representing the interests of the Portuguese American community at large. To learn more about PALCUS and how to become a member or to make a donation, visit www.palcus.org. To submit feedback or suggestions about the podcast, email us at palcus.palcus.org. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the show are not endorsed by PALCUS.
Politicus is made possible through the support of the Luso-American Development Foundation.